your honor. Thank you. Case number 19-2706, Minnesota, Gary Luis et al. versus RBC Capital Markets. Uh, Mr. Goodwin. Uh, good morning, your honors, counsel, and David Goodwin here from Gustafson Glick, appearing on behalf of the plaintiff appellants in the breach of contract case against RBC. The central issue here before the court is whether a broker uh, can voluntarily make a promise to follow industry requirements in their contracts with the clients, and if there's any recourse for the clients if the broker decides not to do so. As set forth in our briefs, we believe that the record on summary judgment shows that the answer to both questions here is yes. Appellants are all RBC clients with conservative investment risk profiles uh, who are put into investments known as reverse convertible notes or RCNs. These are short-term high-risk structured uh, products with a risk of having the value of the entire investment plunged to zero. Now here the, the claims, there's one count simple common law breach of contract claim. In this case, RBC drafted the contract and they voluntarily inserted language to make the transaction subject to uh, various regulations and rules, including FINRA regulations and rules. Uh, in doing so, RBC was required to, to follow the industry standards known as uh, Know Your Customer. And in doing so, they, they had to understand the risk appetite for their, their plaintiffs. And here, if they applied those rules to the risk appetite for these plaintiffs here, they wouldn't be uh, making these recommendations beyond those appetites, and which resulted in major losses for the plaintiffs and, and major gains for RBC. So here, uh, the paragraph 16 of the operative uh, contract includes language that sweeps in this know your customer requirement and notes that all transactions in my account shall be subject to applicable laws and regulations of various uh, well, agencies. Now, now, as you well know, the words before that is I agree that, and I think that means I acknowledge that. Why isn't this more of an acknowledgement than an agreement? Well, it's it's an it's agreement for sure on the part of, uh, of both parties. It's it's a acknowledgement. No, that it says, it, Counselor, let me interrupt you. It says, I agree. It doesn't say we agree or the parties agree. It says in consideration of RBC doing, oh, give me a count. <laughs> I love that. But still, I agree. So right. Deal with the singular I agree, all right? And I think it really means I acknowledge, so you sharpen the point. Go sure. Ahead. And then there's various uh, times in the contract where RBC does use this I language here, but you know that's an, an introductory phrase that's being cited in the contract by the, the client there, but it says that I understand that all of these transactions will be subject to these various regulations. And so here it's important to note that RBC is the one who's conducting all of these transactions. The clients, uh, this is a or an account that RBC is making all the recommendations and the investments there. So well, to, to, to think back to state law, the duty, I would say, if I know this is not a state law case, but but the duty is on RBC. It should say RBC agrees. Right. Yeah, well, stick it to them. You, you need that, don't you? Well, again, this is a this is a contract that RBC drafted and it's saying, you know, that the clients understand that they it's an acknowledgement that they see that RBC is going to conduct this because all of the transactions at issue are possible are subject, are being conducted by RBC here. So there's, this is not a situation where the clients could even conduct you know, these, these transactions on their own if they wanted to. And again, this is language to, to, to show that the RBC is going to, to follow these rules. And if they follow these rules, the, the clients would not put into these investments. So if you look at it, 
this is uh, there's a two-step analysis to here. There's the whether you're eligible to be put into these investment products, and then there's a, a second level of suitability. Well, the the eligibility requirement is a bright line threshold analysis that cuts off any sort of uh, further suitability issues. But I, I think you know this. I'd like to point the the court's direct uh, attention to the interactive brokers case that we, we sub submitted. Uh, there, it's a strong guidance uh, on the on a situation like this. Well, now that's an arbitration case, right? It was it was brought in arbitration, then ultimately appealed up to the district court and well, into and of course, circuit. You may know that uh, the United States Supreme Court has been clear for several years that if the arbiter is anywhere near right, we're not supposed to. We, the federal courts, are not supposed to mess with it. I know that's a quick and dirty summary of the law, but it's not really wrong. Uh, so, how do you respond to that? For sure, and we certainly acknowledge it's a it's a deferential standard there. But it does it's important to note that in that case, the 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 plaintiffs and the investors there they brought a breach of contract case, and in there there was no uh, there was no sort of implied cause of action under any sort of FINRA rule. The investors there won under under the arbitration. Ultimately, went to the district court, which is the case that RBC cited. The Fourth Circuit reviewed it and reversed it. Um, because again, going back to whether these investments were even eligible to be in there, but here it's a similar situation to to the present case because RBC is making the trades for the clients in our case, whereas the interactive brokers case, the uh, inter the the defendant there was was making the trades as well. So, uh, and it's also important to note that in the dissent, there was there was a dissent in that case, it was a two, a two to one decision, but the dissent did not make any issue with whether a breach of contract claim is a, a viable claim to bring. It, it only made issue with the damages analysis uh, in, in the case there. So um, now that case, of course, is there, there was a uh, en banc petition which was, was filed and denied. And you know, we, we'll see if there's a cert petition to follow. But that does create a, a, a circuit split with the, with the Gerfine decision that came out of the Second Circuit, which uh, the defendant relies well, Now, Gerfine is an unreported case, right? Uh, unpublished case, or whatever we, whatever we want to call it these days. Uh, right, correct? That's my understanding, yes. It's my understanding, too. So, first of all, I don't know what makes a circuit split because I think the Supreme Court's view is that an unpublished case like that doesn't conflict with a published one. But uh, do, you know, do you have any view on that? Because you mentioned circuit split. Well, in, 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 in that situation, that only adds further support to our position that here we have a Fourth Circuit case saying that okay. very similar circumstances with language that has this general um, uh, you know, the agreement that the, these trades are going to be conducted by this various regulatory in compliance with various regulatory bodies will um, will follow those will those rules. So, you know, again, that, that creates even even more support for us here. Um, okay, let me interrupt you again because it did spark this question. Sure. Has the has the Gerfine case been cited again by the Second Circuit, say in a published opinion? Um, I uh, don't. As I sit here, I don't. I don't know if it's been cited in a in a, in a okay. In a second. We circuit. can determine that uh, before your time's gone. We're halfway there. Uh, the Bergmeier case. Boy, if you just look at it, I know it's the Minnesota Court of Appeals. I mm -hmm. get that. So don't mm -hmm. answer about it's not the Minnesota Supreme Court. But but address address the Minnesota Court of Appeals Bergmeier case because, gosh, you just read that and it says subject to all provisions of the Farm Credit Act and you know how the case ends. Go ahead. Sure, sure. Certainly. And I think, um, you know, you, 
the case there, well, that was about uh, generally applying this Farm Credit Act to, to the mortgage at, at issue there. Here, and there's a language in that decision saying that, you know, there wasn't a, a very specific language about the things going on here. So we would say, you know, first of all, that there's, we're talking about more specific things. We're not saying that, you know, FINRA, that the language that RBC inserted here applies to every single aspect. It's talking about the transactions in this account. And, and, and second of all, I think, you know, that is a Minnesota Court of Appeals decision, but I think we cited to a case uh, in our briefing, the, the Graphic Communications uh, Local 1B Health and Welfare Fund, which was a Minnesota Supreme Court decision there. And, and that helped do with the uh, uh, Pharmacy Pri uh, Pricing Act. And there's an issue of whether a, a party could bring a, a false uh, a consumer fraud claim in, in a situation where there is a regulatory system in place. And the Minnesota Supreme Court in the, the 2014 decision said that a claim under the Pharmacy Practice Act and a Consumer Fraud Act are not mutually exclusive. So we think that the Minnesota Supreme Court decision provides good direction here to show that uh, you can have a claim like this that is not part of a, uh, a larger regulatory uh, system, if you will. Uh, and, and again, and, you know, similarly, the you know, the Palmer Act is a case, or the Palmer case uh, is an Eighth Circuit case uh, here that it is the same situation that the Palmer case was decided in 2012 and it acknowledged that there was no controlling Minnesota Supreme Court precedent on the issue, whereas the the uh, graphic communications um, health and welfare fund case came out in 2014 and I think clarifies and really you know sharpens the. The, the issue that yes, you can have a claim that is outside of this this regulatory uh, framework, and I, and I think um, going beyond you know there's there's certainly other cases um, that you know, have recognized such a breach of contract case and a, a claim in a case like this. So for instance, it's on our briefing that the Komanoff case there said you know we don't have to get into whether this is any sort of implied. A right of action under a FINRA or any other authority because there is a breach of contract claim that's here. And that's that's the same situation we have here today where this is not a claim, you know, trying to assert some new private cause of action. This is a clear one count breach of contract claim. Um, this, this may not be directly relevant to your argument, but I do have a question about the con consent decree that the company entered with FINRA. Is there overlap of these plaintiffs with folks who got restitution in that? No, that, that was entirely separate. So that was a very small subset of the number of people who were involved in these reverse convertible note transactions. So that was, uh, I believe, had to do with about 200 individuals who were in California who were put into these uh, these products. And you know, our understanding is that there were several thousand of these reverse convertible notes issued in, in the class period. So it's a, it's a from our understanding, a, a much smaller subset of the entire uh, universe. Thank you. And, and again, you know, on the issue of this, uh, the, the acceptance when the waiver and consent letter, you know, it's important to note that, you know, that was, that was a negotiated settlement. So, you know, for the idea that it, it didn't really address, uh, you know, this question of eligibility or, or who should go into this, that, you know, that's, you know, that's sort of outside of oh, uh, where we, uh, we are, but I see I'm running into my rebuttal time, so I will. You, you may reserve it. I'll reserve it. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Langdon. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, counsel, may it please the court. This is a breach of contract claim under Minnesota law. Both parties agree that Minnesota law governs. The court below 
reviewed Minnesota law extensively, including the Bergmeier case, applied it to this language and found it determinative of, um, uh, uh, of the issue here. That is whether language that both parties agree to be unambiguous and that simply says subject to, I agree, as you observed, Judge Benton, that all the transactions in my account are subject to the very comprehensive securities law regulatory scheme, does not itself create a private breach of contract claim where that scheme doesn't have a statutory private right of action. Well, you, you mentioned that point, and, and do you want to address the graphic communications case? I'm not as familiar with that, candidly, as I am with Bergmeier and Nelson and, and, and Gerfine. So tell me about the graphic communications case, because it is the Minnesota Supreme Court. It is the Minnesota Supreme Court, Your Honor, and the Minnesota Supreme Court did hold that in that circumstance, a plaintiff could plead under a specific Minnesota statute, the Consumer Fraud Act, which is by, by mandate of that Supreme Court to be read extraordinarily broadly, you could plead a specific claim despite the fact that there was no private right of action under that uh, regulation with respect to pharmaceutical drugs. It's a different circumstance here. Number one, if in fact that were the case here, this claim would be preempted by SLUSA, which is one of our alternative arguments for affirmance, and I won't go into that now. But no, more SLUSA doesn't apply to, let me interrupt you, because SLUSA does, I'll complete your sentence, SLUSA doesn't apply to a plain old breach of contract, right? If it's plain old breach of contract, that's absolutely yeah, yeah, right, that, Your Honor. Right, so I understand it, so go back to your argument, because that's a detail. So, so my point is that graphic communications, the Supreme Court in no way, shape, or form said that uh, a breach of contract claim could be created by a clause like that that exists here, a subject to clause, we'll call it for short. So it's not, it is the Supreme Court, but it's not at all on point here. What is on point are the two court of appeals opinions that the district court <coughs> here cited and parsed and that are cited in our case and which frankly, appellants pretty much completely ignore. Bergmeier and uh, Van Ipperen. There's the Shermer case as well. And together, they create a, a canon of contract construction under the governing Minnesota law here, which says that a clause like this is not sufficiently specific, not sufficiently promissory to create a, a claim for a breach of contract for failing to uh, comply with um, some aspect or another of the statutory scheme that governs securities. You don't just have Bergmeier and you don't just have Van Eperin, but you have this court in Palmer and later in Nelson applying Minnesota law in circumstances that are analogous to this in insurance cases where there was a comprehensive insurance regulatory scheme and holding that under Minnesota law, uh, language like this is not sufficiently specific to create a contract. And uh, here I'll so interrupt you again. Uh, you sure. mentioned. Uh, Gerfine or Gerfine. Uh, now that case, I understand a lot of district courts have cited it. Has the Second Circuit ever cited it again? Do you know? I am not aware that the Second Circuit has, Your Honor. Uh, I will be happy to undertake that research to determine one way or another. Uh, the 28J would be fine on the 28J letter would be fine. Do Thank you know you. if other circuits have cited it? Now that I recall, they're all district courts. They, they are, all, to my knowledge, they are all district courts. 
So I take your point with respect to whether Gerfine is precedential. To me, and I believe to the district court, it's only informative. Minnesota law here is determinative, as the Minnesota Court of Appeals has articulated and as this court has cited it as well. Gerfine is very helpful because it's precisely on point, but it is not governing. And I would go further to say, in response to Your Honor's question with respect to the interactive brokers case, I don't think that that, regardless of whether Gerfine is sufficiently published that the Supreme Court of the United States would take account of it, the interactive brokers case would not create a circuit split in any event. That case did not hold that language like this, in fact, does create a private right of action, does create a breach of contract claim. It merely observed in the context of applying a standard, which I think Your Honor admirably described as anywhere near the ballpark, an arbitration claim is going to be upheld. Manifest disregard of the law means something way more than the words suggest. It has to be so wrong as to be incomprehensible. And the court merely pointed out, hey, it's at least arguable that this clause does create a contract claim. So therefore, we're not going to apply manifest disregard. And the district court, God bless his soul, was wrong in saying that this was some sort of jackleg operation, this arbitration clause. So I don't think interactive brokers creates a circuit split. It certainly doesn't apply Minnesota law. And I think it's really a side issue here. The governing Minnesota law is absolutely clear. And appellants have not have not only not distinguished it, they have not offered any other competing Minnesota law to suggest that their interpretation is correct. I suggest here that that is determinative. And I might observe as well that in Bergmeier and Van Ipperen, the Minnesota Court of Appeal was content to tell the plaintiffs in those cases that they had no claim. They had no cause of action. They had no remedy for the perceived wrong under state statutory laws that the state government, which was charged with enforcing those laws, had not enforced. Here, we're one better because these plaintiffs had a remedy. They had the ability to pursue the very claims they're raising here in arbitration, an arbitration under the FINRA provisions, an arbitration that they agreed to in their contract. They chose not to do that as their right is and to attempt to bring a class action claim, which isn't subject to contract and get themselves into federal court. They didn't succeed. The first time around, the district court said, no, SLUSA preempts and you're out. The second time around, the district court said, well, it is a pure breach of contract claim as you've pleaded it because they didn't have a separate options agreement like you contend plaintiffs that they should have had. But now discovery has shown that that's not right either. And now their theory is down to this subject to clause. And under Minnesota law, it simply cannot stand. And there's not been any basis offered to distinguish or to show that the district court's analysis was incorrect. And I would observe as well and be happy to rely primarily on our brief in this regard. But it does seem to me that if the appellants were correct, 
that their that their theory for breach of contract here in fact is viable then they have strayed away from a strict breach of contract claim into something that becomes subject to sluice because their argument here really is you sold us a risky product that was too risky for us you didn't do the suitability analysis you should have done so you lied to us we relied on the fact under this subject to clause that you um, would uh, sufficiently screen products not to sell ones to us that aren't suitable for us you failed you lied to us that converts it into a salusa claim something about either a misstatement or an omission of a material fact and so even were appellants correct here, uh, their case would be preempted anyway under SLUSA, something the district court didn't have to reach below, but would be appropriate for this court to reach. So I'd be happy to, to address any further questions that the court has. Otherwise, I will Okay, let, let me check. Uh, Judge Shepard, any further questions of Mr. No. Uh, Langdon? No. Judge Kelly, any further questions of Mr. Langdon? No further questions. Okay. Mr. Langdon, I can't resist asking. I've, I've, I've held off, but I'm going to ask. Are these kind of products still being sold? They are indeed being sold. Okay, thank you. That's, that's way beyond the record. And if, if we hadn't had the extra time, I wouldn't have asked uh, uh, that question. Uh, but listen, thank you very much for your argument. Uh, Mr. Goodwood, rebuttal. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Uh, a couple of issues to address. Uh, this, the issue of SLUSA and its misrepresentation, again, the, the complaint is clear. This is a breach of contract claim. The district court recognized that. The issue of whether this is a misrepresentation or anything of the sort is, is not on appeal here. The, the, the claim is that RBC voluntarily inserted this language into their contract with their clients, and they said that we are going to abide by these rules, and then they did not abide by those rules. There's no issue of misrepresentation here. This is clear. That's, this is something that they said they would do to it, for their clients, and they did not do it. They took their money, and then the clients ended up losing. RBC walks away with it. Uh, uh, the issue of looking at suitability versus eligibility, no. This Again, like I said, this is eligibility is the first threshold analysis. There's no suitability analysis to be done. Uh, at all in a case like this. And again, that's also supported in the interactive brokers case. They did not go into any sort of suitability determination. It was pure eligibility. Um, and, and again, all the cases that uh, the RBC cites and relies on out of Minnesota, you know, the court of appeals case, they give directions in, the, in those specific cases, but there's not a case that precludes a, a claim like this. Uh, for instance, the, the Van Eperen case, uh, it said that, you know, there's no private cause of action under, um, uh, under the federal act there, but they said that the farmers are not precluded from asserting their claim in common law. And that's exactly where we are here. Um, again, the, um, in, in Gerfine, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, I disagree with the assertion that it's on point. Again, it's a very different situation because that was a case where somebody said, I am going to open an account with Ameritrade. I'm going to trade options or whatever it is I want to. And I am acknowledging that, yes, I am going to abide by these FINRA regulations and rules. And I'm going to have money in my account to make the trades and to pay my brokers and whatnot. Well, here, this isn't that situation because RBC is making all of the trades. They're making the recommendations. It's not the fact that they're, you know, in Gerfine, someone says, I acknowledge that I'll be subject to FINRA. Well, of course, because they are making the trades here. It's the shoes on the other foot where th that's not the case at all. You have 
a situation where RBC is making the trades on behalf of their clients. And these are trades that were, it's not, there's no question that they were misrepresented or anything like that. It's that they said they would do this, they didn't do it, and this is how our, our clients ended up losing a substantial amount of money. And, and to be clear, you know, the issue about arbitrability, you know, there, sure, there is arbitration, but there is no ability for class-wide arbitration in FINRA. And so we've, you know, we have a number of clients and they all had losses. It's just not practical to to pursue this in arbitration. Like I said, we know that there have been thousands of these products that were sold in the class period. Uh, so, you know, this is why the breach of contract claim in federal court is, is the viable avenue to resolve this. Um, so unless there are any further questions, that's that's all I have. Judge Shepard, anything further? Nothing from me. J Judge Kelly? Nothing further. Okay, that concludes the argument. 19-2706 is submitted for decision by the court. And Ms. Smith, does that end our